Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So um, we're in a series, In a Godless World, from Titus chapter 3. And we've been doing this uh, book of Titus for a while. It's an exciting time to look and see of Paul's directions to kind of his emissary that he sent to the island of Crete for Titus. What I want to ask you this morning is, I wonder if you've ever met somebody who had a massive change in their life. You know, you, it's like you've known them and you didn't see them for a while and then you reconnect with them and you, you think, holy smokes, what changed? You know, maybe it's a, it's a guy you knew and he was a complete party or maybe he was like, you know, a pothead or whatnot and all of a sudden he's living on fire for Jesus and he's just changed his whole life around or maybe it's someone you knew, like they, they had a massive change, like maybe you knew her and, and she was a, you know, a diehard Republican and now she's a diehard Democrat, and she went whoosh all the way over on the other side of the aisle, and you just went, whoa, what changed? Or maybe it's someone who you knew lost like 150 pounds, and you went, whoa, where did that happen? Like half of you is gone, and you, what changed? There's, something had to change, and maybe it's an alcoholic, someone who was pursuing alcohol, and they, and they put away the bottle and straightened up their life, and and you just see them on the straight and narrow course now, and you go, what happened? You know, maybe it's, uh, I just had my 20-year high school reunion. I wasn't able to attend it, but 20 years makes me feel old, and, and I was thinking about these reunions. Maybe you go to a high school reunion, and you see somebody, and you go, wow, like that guy was, you know, he could barely pass a class in high school, and now he's this successful computer engineer somewhere. And you think, how did that happen? Like, what changed? What happened? What was the moment of change? Somewhere, some idea flipped in their head. Somewhere they got it, you know? What was that idea? What were these things that flipped? As we talk through this series, In a Godless World, we talk about what it's like to live in a godless world because we do. In so many ways, we live in a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that doesn't pursue Christ above all else, that is just sort of godless and moralistic and nice, but just completely devoid of God in so many ways. And we understand what it's like to live in a godless world. We interact with that every day. The Christians on the island of Crete understood the same thing. Crete was a godless place. We've looked at that over and over as we've gone through this series, that the island of Crete was godless. There were people running around, indulging in every kind of immoral behavior. The church was infested with people who were trying to add something to the gospel. 
We talked about the gospel plus several weeks ago. That this idea that there were people who were saying, okay, it's not enough just to believe in Jesus. You need to add some things. So we're going to add some rules for you. Or, or we're going to add, some, you need to become a Jew first, and then you can follow Jesus. And then you can have faith in Jesus. And they were trying to add things, gospel plus, to the message, the good news of Jesus. And we can relate to that because we do live in a godless world where people are trying to say gospel plus or gospel minus, you know. Like, eh, never mind that Jesus guy. We live in this, and it's really hard sometimes to live in this kind of world. In the kind of world that the, the Christians on the island of Crete lived in, Paul sent Titus to fix this mess because this kind of life was, it was finding its way, its fingers were penetrating into the church. And so Titus was sent by the Apostle Paul to correct this. It's really important as we go today that we remember what happened the last two weeks as we looked at the, at the book of Titus. The last two weeks, the first week we talked about the beauty of the gospel. We talked about how we make, as followers of Jesus in a godless world, we make the gospel look beautiful. The way we live makes the gospel look beautiful. It matters. So when we live in community together as the body of Christ, when we love each other, when we truly love and, and sacrifice and put aside our own needs and desires, our rights, we give them up for each other, it's beautiful. We make it look beautiful. When we do what is good in our culture, we make the gospel look beautiful. When we care about our, our, each other more than ourselves, when we willingly set aside our rights, when we do this, we make the gospel look beautiful and we show off the gospel to the world. The world does not get community. It gets looking for some buddies to hang out on the block party with so you're not completely alone. It doesn't get real sacrificial community where I set aside my rights, my privileges for the good of someone else. And when we do this in the world with each other, we make the gospel beautiful. That was two weeks ago. Last week we saw that the gospel makes us beautiful. We saw that when we renounce worldly passions, when we embrace godliness, the gospel changes us. And so today it's all about the change. That's really what it's all about. It's all about the change. It's about what happened. What happens in the lives of a person to change them from living one way to living another way. I want you to look at the text with me, and I want to start actually in verse 3 as we, as we look at the text. I want to see what makes someone go from living one way to where they can hear the instructions and receive instructions to live another way. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Paul says to, to Titus, he says, At one time, we too, and I think he's talking about believers himself, Titus included, all the Christians on Crete. He said, we too, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. I mean, this is crazy. Look at how the people on this, on the Christians on Crete, how Paul and Titus, how before we knew Jesus, how we lived. We were foolish, Paul says. Foolish and disobedient. What did we pursue? We pursued us. <laughs> we pursued our own glory. We pursued the things that were good for us. We were foolish. We didn't care about obeying God. We were slaves to our passions and pleasures. You know, before we knew Jesus, if it feels good, do it. 
Right? What's going to stop? As long as you don't hurt anybody else, what's wrong with it? We just go with what feels good and what seems right. And we pursued our passions and pleasures. And we were angry and fighting. You know, anger and envy always lead to destruction. They lead to hated and being, hating and being hated. It's tit for tat. And that's the way the world works. And before we knew Jesus... If you're mad at someone else, it eats at you. It leads towards hatred. These were the characteristics of life before Christ. And then, I mean, it's like a big episode of, of Big Brother, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that show. It's messed up. And, uh, you know, these people just pursuing them, themselves and what's good for them, passions and pleasures, doing what it takes to win the game. It's ridiculous. It's some reality show. I mean, uh, I was sitting in a room and The Bachelor was on. Have you ever seen this show, The Bachelor? And, and you know, like, two women are fighting over the same guy, and the guy's like, boy, you know, I kind of like them both. Can I just have both? Like, would that work out? That'd be fine with me. And you just look at this stuff, and you go, all you care about at some point is you Pursuing passions and pleasures. That's what life before Jesus looks like. Now, so how do we move then? How do we move from foolish, disobedient, angry type people to receiving the instruction in verses 1 and 2? Look at 1 and 2. Remind the believers. Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities. To be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards men. This is, to, towards all men, this is more than just be a nice person. So many Christian times we think Christianity is boiled down to being nice. This is more than that. This is an intentional decision to not pursue selfishness, but to pursue Jesus and other people. Submissive and obedient to civil authorities. You know, in each of us, there's this anti-authoritarian slant, I think. You know, my libertarian friends hate authority, right? They're like, hey, no authority, whatever. That's fine. That's great. But in each of us, there's some of that. And what Paul says, what Paul says is that there is a different way to live in which you say, I put myself under whose authority? God's authority. How do you just go from, I don't want to be answered to anyone, to I will answer to God Almighty. And if God puts a ruin or authority in my life, I will be subject. How do you do that? Like, you don't just go boom and change. I mean, how do you be ready to do good works, actively seeking the good of others? You know, when someone hates you and does something to me, how do you not slander them back? True humility is pushing down my pride which is always seeking my best. How do you take a bunch of rabble-rousing, messed up, selfish, hedonistic people and turn them into something that resembles Jesus? What makes the change? What makes the change? My uncle came last week. Uh, I only have one uncle in the world, and he's my mom's brother, and I only see him once every couple of years. And uh, my uncle, who's uh, 74, came, and he hasn't been here for a couple of years, and he hasn't seen my family. And, uh, and it was crazy. So he's at my mom's house, and we walk in, and Nicholas is in first, and he walks into my mom's living room, and my Uncle Wendell is there. And he looks at Nicholas, who is now 6'3", and big. And uh, <laughs> I can still take him. I can. 
Even if I have to cheat, I can take him. All right. And so, you know, Nick's big. And so uh, he comes in the room, and my Uncle Wendell looks at Nick and goes, holy cow, it's David on steroids. Like, uh, <laughs> it was awesome, you know? And he came in, and he said, what happened? What have you been feeding him? I want to, you know, like, what makes the change? How do you go from being, pursuing selfishness and passion and worldly pleasures to receiving this instruction to be submissive, obedient, gentle, and humble. You know that Ryan Lenners has been my intern now for a year, and uh, he's my pastoral intern. We're training him for ministry, and, and one of the things that I wanted to do is give Ryan a chance, uh, it just because we're, we're kind of like a teaching hospital, right? We're a, right. We're a teaching church. And so uh, I wanted to give Ryan a chance to answer the question that I just laid out. What makes the change? What makes someone go from... from from selfish and pursuing the kinds of passions that are only self-vested and self-interest to being the kind of person that looks like Jesus. And he's going to work through the rest of this text today and answer that question. All right. This is really a question that people have been facing through all of time, haven't they? Lots of people, they try to be better people. Um, during Paul's time, there were the Greeks, and they were all a bunch of philosophers who loved to sit back and think about, okay, how can I look at this life and how can we be more virtuous? How can we attain this higher reality of being a better people that are serving others? So they were trying to find how they could make this transformation from people they didn't want to be into this virtuous person they wanted to be through reason and through logic. Today, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to do it simply by trying harder. Maybe they had a parent that was incredibly strict or they had a parent who is had issues with alcohol and was abusive, and they say, I will never be like my parent. I will never be like that. I will never be like that person. I'm only going to be like this person. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to do it. Still, there's other people who say, you know, I, I know I can't do it on my own, so I'm going to look and find this inner power. If I could just seek and find this inner power and do the right things, it's kind of the Church of Scientology has been in the news and we've heard it's just a bunch of looking inward and doing all these steps that you have to do yourself to attain this inner power. But all these ways that I've just described of how people try to move from one kind of person to the other is what I call a bootstrap mentality. That's pick yourself up by the bootstraps, try harder, do it yourself, figure it out, it's all on you. All right? But that's not what Paul tells us as we continue in Titus. Paul tells us the difference between the evil person who's filled with hate and hating others and the person who's gentle and humble and obedient has nothing to do with your own actions. It is entirely based on the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior who appeared. He saved us. That's what we see in verse 5. He saved us. The language here is very clear. God, he, is the subject. He is doing the action. The verb is saving. God is saving. We are in the object place of this sentence. We are simply receiving God's saving, his salvation for our lives. We have no part in this. God is saving us. So let me be very clear. We have to understand this as we go forward. We cannot save ourselves. 
And that's exactly where this passage goes with the next phrase after he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. There are no works, no righteous deeds, no attaining to a higher enlightenment, no finding our inner power. None of that is what saves us. That's not it. We're going to look real quick at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is a passage which is actually very similar to this Titus passage. And it starts out with, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in your sin. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among you who were all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This passage is very clear in Ephesians that we are dead spiritually. And dead people can't save themselves. If you're spiritually dead, you can't make yourself come to life. That's not how this works. That's why God intervened. This foundational idea that people cannot save themselves, it's the primary difference between the bootstrap mentality and the doctrine that we find in Christianity. In Christianity, we understand that we cannot save ourselves and that we have to lean on God to save us. So the implications of this, when we truly understand we can't save ourselves, it says that whole view of salvation is a giant scale, and I'm just going to load, okay, I know I have bad works on this side, and I'm going to load my good works on that side, and hopefully if I can get the scale just right, I earn my way into heaven. That's out the window because the only way to get there is to do all your good works and put them on that side of the scale. It's based on what you can do. So what that really means is when you think about it, I'm sure we all have somebody in our lives that will come to mind. You know a good person they work hard, they're very kind to you, they're kind to your kids, they go to PTA meetings, they do everything on the outside that you look at them and you go, you know, that's just a great person. I love being around them, they're very kind. But if they have never responded to the gospel of Jesus, then spiritually they are still dead. They're still dead. On the outside, they're clean, and we recognize that. But on the inside, they are dead. And some of you might be saying, Ryan, that's really harsh. You know, I know some great people and you're saying that they're dead on the inside? That's the exact thing that Jesus told the Pharisees in his day. In his day, he had the Pharisees. They loved to know the law very well and they lived out the law. They did everything that they were supposed to according to the law for the purpose of making themselves on the outside look clean. But Jesus came to him and he said, Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. He recognized that what the Pharisees were doing is they were doing all their work on the outside to make themselves clean. But on the inside, they were dead. That's a tomb. They were spiritually dead on the inside. Jesus called this out in them. So instead 
of trying to get God's grace through our own works. We have to recognize that we're accepting God's mercy for our salvation. But according to his mercy, we deserve a punishment for all of our sin. But it's God's mercy that he shows to us that we're not punished. In fact, instead, he cleans us on the inside and he removes all of our sin. That next verse, but by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is this doctrine, this incredible Christian doctrine that we have to understand of regeneration, okay? Regeneration says that the Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit washes us. It's a washing of rebirth and a renewal of the Holy Spirit. So some of the ways, when I say regeneration, some of you might be going, okay, what's Ryan talking about? You're probably a lot more familiar with the terms of being born again or being reborn or being made a new creation in Christ. These are all the same ideas and kind of the same Greek words. They all go together and Paul and the other writers of the New Testament kind of use them. But it's pointing to this picture where the Holy Spirit comes and does something that actually changes us on the inside. He washes us clean and renews us from the sins that stain our soul. And it's in this washing that we're reborn or made a new creation. So picture with me right now, this is kind of, I'm trying to explain what does this washing look like. Picture a house that you walk up to it and, you know, you're thinking, hey, maybe I'll buy this house. The outside looks okay, you know. It's just like all the other houses in the neighborhood. But then you open the door. And inside, there's this putrid smell, the smell of death. You see mold up and down the walls. You find out that there's termites inside the walls. There's bugs and rodents scurrying around as soon as the light comes into the house. Spider webs, birds going out the broken windows. Is this a house that you say, yeah, I think I can buy this. I'll just clean it up. I'll just scrub a little bit here and scrub a little bit there. And slowly but surely, I'll get this place cleaned up. That's not the picture of rebirth and regeneration. The picture of what we need to do here is that we actually... Jesus, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out into us. So when this house, to clean it up, we don't just scrub it. It needs to be knocked down completely. It needs to be started over. The only way that this house can be clean is if we start over. And that's what regeneration is on our inside for our spiritual life. It's not a slow, we're just going to wash things up and we're going to slowly work on you and you'll slowly make a change. Regeneration is a dramatic, drastic, new creation inside of you completely new. And that's something that we have to understand and realize the gravity of being a new creation. The next word that we see here, we've got this washing of regeneration, we have a renewing. A renewing is a change inside of us, okay? I picture it's this change of our motivations or our attitudes. It's not just our thoughts, but it's actually what motivates us to do what we do as Christians. And that drives what we think. We actually think differently because we've been washed and we've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. And an important point to this washing and renewing is it's a single event. The way the Greek is set up here, it's 
by the washing of regeneration and the renewing. It's not by the washing and by the renewing. This isn't two separate things. The washing and the renewing, it's one single event. It's a one-time occurrence. It's a moment. A lot of us understand our salvation as a journey. And I, in fact, like to talk to people about their salvation as a journey. People are far from God and they're walking closer to God. And then they find God and they continue to walk closer and closer to God, imitating Jesus and being more in his likeness. But regeneration says that in this journey, there is a singular moment of change where you go from once dead to now made alive in Christ. Some of you may exactly know what that moment was in your life. And others of you may say, you know what? I can't think of a single moment in my life. And that's okay. You don't have to know the exact moment, but you have to know that there was a moment. There was a moment in your life where you were dead spiritually and Christ made you alive. It was in that moment that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. We see that in Revelation 21, that the Holy Spirit washes you, the Holy Spirit renews you, the Holy Spirit makes you a new creation, and your name goes in the Lamb's book of life. That by having your name in that book, it's saying, this is really annoying. It's saying that you are going to be a child of God in heaven. This is a bold claim that we're making. We're saying that this washing, this renewing, this regeneration actually makes Christians different than non-Christians. This is what explains the change that Pastor Dave set up. He set up there's one set of people and then there's another set of people who are obedient. I'm saying the people who are evil and hating each other, hating themselves, they are spiritually dead. And Paul is telling Titus to have people live a different life because they are made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. Additionally, when we look at this passage, we have to understand, like what Doug brought up last week when he said, uh, when we ask Jesus into our hearts, we sometimes forget about the work of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, it's not just Jesus coming into our hearts when we get saved. It's actually the entire Trinity is a part of this. We see that it's our God, our Savior who appeared. We were washed and we were renewed by the Holy Spirit. And all this happened, the Spirit was poured out through Jesus our Savior. All three parts of the Trinity come together in this amazing doctrine of regeneration. If Jesus hadn't died on the cross for us, none of this would be possible. But because of his sacrificial obedience, we can be made alive. My last point on how does God save us is in this we see two words. One in verse 5, but according to his mercy. And the other in verse 8, so that being just, or in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace. Part of our regeneration, it's God's mercy and God's grace. And I want to clarify this for people. Grace and mercy don't mean the same thing. As I've already said, mercy means having the consequences you deserve being withheld. Our punishment is withheld from us. Grace is receiving a free gift which we have not earned. Okay? So Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying that we receive God's mercy and that we're not punished and that we're justified by his grace. 
We receive something that we have not earned, and that's becoming children and heirs of God, brothers and sisters of Jesus, and inheriting eternal life. So after we look at how God saves us, we have to say, why does God save us? And that's in verse 7. Uh, Pastor Dave talked about this, I think, last week or two weeks ago, this phrase, so that. In this whole section of Scripture, we see he saved us, not because of works, but according to his mercy, a little later, so that. For the purpose that. Why did God save us? That we might become heirs. Heirs. Daughters and sons of God. God becomes our father. We are his children. Jesus, our brothers, our brother. The whole church, everybody else who believes, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of God's family. God loves us so much that he wants to bring us into his family. He wants to adopt us in. Adoption is a picture that I have a little bit of knowledge about. Our son William, we've adopted a little over a year ago. And when we adopted William, we went through a long process and a difficult process. It was a journey, you might say. But ultimately, in this journey of adopting William, we had a moment. We had a moment where he went from not our child to being our child. We received a birth certificate that says, William was born to my wife and I. It says, live birth. It's all the facts of his birth. And then it says that Michelle is the mother and I am the father and he is our child. He is our son. Some of us take this too lightly when we hear the concept of adoption in the Bible. We are made God's children. In Ephesians it said we were children of wrath. Now we're made children of God. This is huge. If we don't get excited about this, why would the world? Why would the world say, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing all this exterior behavior modification, I'm being a good person. How are you any different than me? If they can't see our excitement in the gospel, in the good news of Christ, why make that change? Not only are we heirs with Christ now, but it's this hope of eternal life. Like I said, there's this Lamb's Book of Life. This isn't just for the short term. This isn't just let's adjust our lives for how we live on earth now. This has eternal ramifications. This is the rest of our life. And why do we get this? Is it because of anything we did? No, it's because of God's extravagant love for his children. He wants us in his family. If the worship team could please come up. This, what I'm trying to convey here, is the good news of the gospel. Yes, we cannot save ourselves. We are spiritually dead. We can try. We can change our behaviors. We can try to be good people. But at the end of the day, we can't save ourselves. But God chose to save us. He did the action. He shows us mercy. He washes us. He renews us by his Holy Spirit. He graciously gives us a gift we did not earn. He lets us be a part of his family. 
Like we've never been children of wrath. He doesn't even see that. All he sees is his birth certificate that says, I am a child of God. And all this has nothing to do with our goodness. It's entirely based on God's goodness. How are we supposed to respond to that? If you have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ presented like this, that it's this simple, you can't save yourself, only God can save you, the gospel calls you to make a response. You have to respond. You can't sit there and say, oh, I'm not going to respond, I don't know. Because not responding is a response. It's saying, Ryan, what you're talking about, I don't believe. I don't believe that I'm spiritually dead. I don't believe that there's something out there to make me spiritually alive. Because that's what Scripture tells us. Scripture is very clear. As Christians, that's what we believe. So if you haven't made that decision right now, the gospel is calling you to make a response. If you want to make that response, find somebody today and talk to them about it. For those of you who do know that you are a new creation in Christ, now is not the time to sit back and say, well, then I don't need to do anything because God did it for me. Praise God. This brings a whole new thing of gratitude that's supposed to flow out of our lives because of the grace and the mercy of God. And that's what next week's lesson is going to be about. What we do is a response to this gospel. But what we can do today and we're going to do right now and we can continually do as we go out from this place is we can worship God and we can rejoice in his salvation. We rejoice that God has given us new life. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And it looks a lot like that birth certificate. Dan, if you could put that up there. We get, it's written in this book. We rejoice because we become heirs with Jesus in God's family. We rejoice that we're called children of God. On our birth certificates, you can't see it in that bottom line, it says Father. That's where it says God Almighty. And it's for that that we're all going to stand right now. And we're going to sing praise and worship. And we're going to rejoice and celebrate in our Father. We are all sons and daughters of our God. And He has saved us.